Good morning. This is coming from Exodus, chapter 32, verses 1 through 33, uh, all of chapter 32, and chapter 33 through verse 6. The Golden Calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who knew brought us up from Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, taking off the gold earrings, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Then Aaron saw this. He built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why should you anger your anger burn against your people? whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should Egyptians say it was the evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not uh, bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abram, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give you descendants all this land I promised, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring his, on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were at the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. 
and he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came the calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned and against, uh, against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf and Aaron, that Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you will not because you are stiff necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, You are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. This is God's word. Thank you, Esther. Let's pray. I think we need it more today than usual. <laughs> oh, Lord, this part of the story is hard to hear. It's hard to read. 
but we pray that the mirror of your word would show us things about us that may be hard to see, but that we can um, bring to you and that we can um, bring under the, the mercy and the power of Jesus. So help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. I heard a story from a former boss. Uh, a friend of his had, had built a custom home somewhere in Wisconsin. He, he was a contractor, and he would spend weekends and, and evenings working on this home, and it was all custom built. It was this beautiful property, and uh, one night he was putting on some finishing touches with, with stain, staining some wood, and he, he balled up a rag he had been using and threw it in the trash barrel in the house. Well, if you know anything about stain, it can combust when you do that. And so the next morning he came back, or when he came back to the house, and it was totally gone. All that work went up in flames. That's a little bit like what we're seeing here in Exodus 32. After all that God has done for these people, rescuing them from Egypt, sending Moses, sending the plagues, parting the sea, speaking to them from the mountain, feeding them with manna, giving them water to drink from the rock, giving them his law, and they have said, yes, we'll obey you. And after all of that, how quickly it goes up in flames. It's not, a, it's not an honest mistake. It's not an enemy attack. It's not they tried and failed, but they simply rebelled. It was a calculated, deliberate rebellion against God. And so we're left asking, is, there, is this the end of the story? I mean, is this just, is this all that there is? How can they go forward from here? Even in the last words of what was read today, the last words of the Lord are basically like, I'm going to have to think about what I'm going to do with you. Well, I'll, I'll see what I will do with you. And Moses had said, perhaps I can make atonement for you. But there are no certainties at the end of this passage. It's very unsettling. This golden calf episode is called a great sin. That phrase was used three times in this passage. And it's the first time in Exodus that kind of language has been used of the people of God. They committed a great sin. But this story, um, even though it's hard to read, it, it is a mirror that shows us things about ourselves that we cannot afford to miss. Every week when I study a text to get ready to preach it, I, one of the questions I ask is, what is the good news in this passage? Because we're, we're gospel people. We believe God has good news for us through Jesus. And I want to tell you, it's hard to find that good news this week. But there is good news. There is, there is good news. I just want to warn you, it's going to take a while to get there. And it's going to be a bumpy ride. So put on your seatbelt and let's go. And we need, to talk, we need to talk about three things about how this story unfolds. There's, the re there's rebellion, there's the ruin that this causes, and then there's hope of recovery. 
rebellion, ruin, and recovery. Uh, we can't cover every feature of this story. It's just too long, but I'm going to try to pull things together under those three headings. Um, and please open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Exodus 32. <clears throat> I better do that as well, since I'm the preacher. <laughs> Exodus 32. We begin... Uh, the first words of chapter 32 almost knocked the wind out of us. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, okay, he's been up there for, he was there for 40 days total, so it's been several weeks at this point. They gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. <laughs> so picture this. Picture this. People are grumbling. How long is Moses going to be up there? Maybe he forgot about us. You know, the last time we saw him, he was going into that fiery cloud at the top of the mountain. Maybe he died. Maybe he uh, is going to go do his own thing. I say we take things into our own hands. And so they corner Aaron and they say to him those four words that just undo everything. Make, come, make us gods. May, how can you make a god? Well, this is idolatry. This is idolatry. I wonder if anyone said, guys, uh, do you remember like the Ten Commandments? Remember like the first one, you shall have no other gods before me? What about the second one? You shall not make a graven image. But they barrel ahead with this plan and it goes downhill fast. Now, stunningly, Aaron, the guy who was about to be appointed as the high priest of his people, goes along with it. Look at verses 2 through 4. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, they, as in the people who were asking for it, said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt." What was Aaron thinking? I mean, really? He didn't at least go to, go to her. His brother, her, was also in charge, and he could have said, let me, let me just go talk to her about this. He just went ahead with this harebrained scheme. And later, when Moses confronts him, I heard you laugh at this point, he's like, Aaron, what, what were you thinking? And he said, I, I, they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf, right? <laughs> Like he's just, he has no excuse, no excuse. And so if you look at what, what is happening here, everything about this idolatry is just a pathetic, perverted imitation of the real thing, right? So instead of their, their gold jewelry being used for the tabernacle, for the holy things of God, now it's being dedicated to make an idol, Instead of God's spirit filling the craftsmen to do this work, which had been talked about, there's Aaron using a tool to make this 
graven image. Instead of the God of the universe, the God of the heavens, who has power and might and glory, you have a lifeless statue of an animal. Yes, but this animal is a, is a young bull that represents strength and fertility and vitality. That's what bulls were seen as, or calves in, in this area. But it's a statue. And there's no God behind it. This is, this is fake. It's perverted. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. It's, uh, it's replacing God with something that is not God and then looking to that thing to give you what God has promised you, right? So if you look at what they said, they're expecting this statue to lead them ahead into the promised land to do what God had said he would do for them. And it gets worse still. Look at verses 5 and 6. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Interesting. He's sort of pretending that this is worship of God. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That means like a wild party, a drunken orgy. So not only are they worshiping this idol, they're, they're trusting in this thing, um, uh, they're doing what they should be doing for God. They're worshiping this statue. But somehow Aaron says this represents God. It's like a perverted imitation of worship. You see, idolatry can dress up like worship, like faith, like Christianity even. But it always leads to sin. It's, it's empty, it's, it's fake, and it leads to sin. To more sin. Okay, so this is the rebellion of the Israelites. And we just, we have to ask, why did they do this? Why? You know, it's easy for us to sit here and point the finger at them. But haven't you ever done something that you later looked back on and thought, what was I thinking? How could I have been so unfaithful, so disobedient, so willfully sinful? Why did I do that? We've all been there, haven't we? And so, friends, so has the church, the church of Jesus Christ, has done some awful, rebellious, idolatrous things. Um, look at how early Americans made an idol out of money and justified slavery. Look at how Catholic and Protestant churches alike have had pastors and priests abuse children and then covered it up because they wanted to hold on to power. That is idolatry. Look at how American Christianity has become corrupted by, uh, by Christian nationalism 
where people get more fired up about the American flag than about Jesus Christ. This is bad stuff. Look at how the church in our day has no clear witness to the world, to the confused and hurting world. We have no clear witness about human sexuality because some churches over here are trumpeting, you know, uh, the, the progressive agenda and other churches are doubling down on hatred and it's like no wonder people are confused. Look at how the American church has made an idol out of celebrities and you have these mega churches based around charismatic personalities. Inevitably they fail and leave wreckage behind them. Look, this story is not about the world out there. This is about the people of God. And we have royally screwed up, if we're honest, right? We have fallen into idolatry, personally and corporately, as a church. And we see the ruin that that idolatry creates. In the very first words, so we'll look at ruin now. In the very first words, God speaks to Moses about what is happening down below. You can tell that damage has been done. In verse 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people, whom you led out of Egypt, have been corrupt, become corrupt. You notice that? Not, not, it's not my people anymore, it's your people. There's distance already in the relationship. Um, and here's the key word in verse 7. They have become corrupt. What does the word corrupt mean? Corrupt is something good that has gone bad, like spoiled milk or uh, uh, rancid meat or a cracked engine block. Something that is good that has become ruined corrupted. That's what idolatry, that's what sin does to us. Think of it this way. Um, Israel was like Cinderella, and so uh, uh, she has fallen in love with the prince. He's rescued her from slavery. She has stood at the altar and pledged her love, but on her wedding night, she runs away with the footman. The depth of the rebellion here just, cre- just, it just creates ruin and brokenness and wreckage in their relationship with God. Something good has been tainted and ruined. And that's why Moses, in anger, uh, you're probably picturing the Charlton Heston scene, he throws down the tablets of the Ten Commandments and they shatter at the foot of the mountain because the covenant that God made with them has been shattered. It's been broken, perhaps irreparably. Yesterday, uh, someone knocked over a glass in our house and it smashed on the floor. And uh, we're sweeping up the thousands of pieces and Asher says, well, we can just glue it back together. <laughs> I, I think he, he's, he was joking. He knows that we can't. But that's what's happened here. Something has been broken, perhaps beyond repair. And that's what our sin does. That's what idolatry does. Their sin also has consequences beyond that relational divide. 
So we read how God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy all of them and start over with you. And Moses intercedes and God changes his mind. We'll talk about that later. Um, uh, but there are still consequences. Moses summons everyone to him that is for the Lord and sends them through the camp and they execute about 3,000 people who we can imagine are probably the ringleaders or the worst offenders. We don't know. There's consequences. And then the Lord sends a plague, it says. We don't know. It doesn't give us any details about what happened or how many people died, if any, but there are consequences. There's ruin. But worst of all, God tells Moses and the people that he will no longer go with them on the journey. He says, I'll send my angel ahead of you, but I myself will not go with you because I might destroy you on the way. Right? We're told uh, in verse 25 that the people had become a laughingstock to the, their enemies. And perhaps, you know, there were some other tribes kind of watching what was happening and thinking, so much for that plan, so much for the God of Israel who they said parted the sea. And th these people are just like everyone else. And so that's what idolatry does also. It spoils the witness of the church in the world. Every time I hear about another Christian nationalist spouting a conspiracy theory or a progressive church uh, espousing a worldly agenda or a megachurch celebrity pastor caught in a scandal, I think it's no wonder Christians have a bad reputation. It's no wonder... People are confused about Jesus. And I think, Lord, how can you put up with us? How? You see, sin has ruinous consequences, not just for us, that it, though it does, but for the world around us, for God's, God's work in the world. Well, is there the possibility of recovery, of redemption. I told you there was good news, and um, we're going to get to that now. Amazingly, after all that has happened, this is not the end of the story. Next week, we'll come back and see the beautiful resolution that comes, but for now, I want to show you two glimmers of hope right here in this text. First, the people of Israel are sorry for their sin, and that is a hopeful thing. That's a hopeful thing. It sinks into them when they hear that God will no longer go with them. 33 verse 4 says, When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. It's like the party's over. We're sitting looking at the ruin of what we've done and we, we feel heartbroken. We feel, we feel sad. We, we can see now what kind of damage this has done. And it can be the same for us. All of you who are believers in Christ know that, that coming to Jesus meant repentance and turning from your sin and feeling sorrow for your sin. 
And that is the gateway to recovery. In fact, there is no recovery without repentance, without agreeing with God, yes, I am a sinner. I royally screwed up. Not only did I mess up, I tried to mess up. Here I am. I'm broken. Repentance is so important. Now, we don't see the people here. Um, this is not like a, a, a passage that really outlines exactly what repentance means, but we see them feeling sorry for their sin and turning from it. Repentance. The second glimmer of hope in this passage is the way that Moses heroically and selflessly intercedes for his people, for God's people. Let me read verses, uh, chapter 32, verses 11 through 14. So God has just said, you know, I'm going to destroy these people and start over with you. And Moses says, Lord, why should your anger burn against your people, your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? He's saying, they're not my people, God. They're your people. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Wow. The second time Moses goes to speak to God, he says in verse 32, Please forgive their sin, but if not, if not, then blot me out of the book you have written also. It's like he's saying, I would rather die than, to, than for these people to die, right? He tells the Lord, I know these people deserve judgment. I know they've sinned. I know they've been unfaithful, but I also know, God, that you cannot be unfaithful to your promise. Remember your promise to Abraham. He appeals to God's own promise, God's own words. Think of your reputation in the world, God. If for any other reason, spare them because of the promise you have made and because of your reputation in this world. And so, friends, we see Moses as the hero of this story. Sparing, I mean, without Moses, the people would have been gone. And it's, side note, it's so interesting how God says something that invites Moses in to intercede for them as if, you know, God didn't need to ask Moses' opinion on this, but he invited him in to, to pray this prayer which ended up sparing Israel. So Moses is the hero of this story. When everything hung in the balance, he secured mercy for these people. And the truth is, the really good news is that we have an even greater hero than Moses in our story. 
and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Because we have totally failed, right? But God offers mercy to rebels and to sinners like us, not because we deserve it, but because he will not break his own promise. He has promised way back from Abraham that he would bless the world through the line of Abraham which came to Jesus, which comes to us. And God stays true to his word. Even at the cost of his own son, Jesus, who said, Father, I would rather die than your people be lost. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus put himself in the place of judgment for us. He interceded for us so that we could receive God's mercy. And so that God could be true to his word to save us and bless us. That's not to say there won't be a reckoning. There will be. God told Moses, I will punish sinners. I will punish people for their sin. And that's almost a relief to me as I think about all of the the screwed up stuff in this world and the, the evil ways Christians have and the people of God have represented him. But I also know this. Everyone who turns and repents and turns to Jesus finds mercy. And that is good news indeed. That even rebels, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. So if, if I could tell you one thing to take away today, it's remember that Jesus is the hero of your story. You are not the hero of your own story. Jesus is. Right? If you think about yourself and, oh, I did pretty well. Oh, I failed that time, but I'm doing better next week. Um, uh, I, I can do better you're, you're going to be in for disappointment. But if you focus on Jesus as the one who interceded for you and the one who obtains mercy for you, like, he is the hero of your story and of my story, not, not ourselves. Because we are in the place of the rebels of Israel, those who, who sinned. And now may that knowledge, may, may our focus on Jesus keep us from idolatry and keep us from high-handed rebellion against God. When we look at Jesus and see what he's done for us, that should spur a desire to be faithful to him. So examine your heart today for idolatry, for sin. Separate yourself from um, and ask God to show you, Lord, am I buying into any golden calves? Am I worshiping any idols? Am I participating in any um, idolatrous ways of living? If he reveals those to you, repent and turn to him. And Jesus remains faithful. Jesus remains faithful. Next week we'll see how God 
brings his mercy to these people. And I look forward to that.